we continue in worship, grab your Bibles, whether it's electronic or uh, hard copy, turn with us to Judges 7 as we kind of begin this morning, as we take a look at, at God's Word, and not just take a look at it as an exercise uh, and that we just quickly get done in order we can move on for the day, though that can be very tempting. And though I don't, that, you know, uh, I, I've never been known to be a short-winded pastor. I try, you know, but sometimes, you know, I just say more than I ought, probably. But I hope you will bear with me, and you will persevere, and you will, uh, you know, be patient as we go through this time this morning. And I want us to ask this question to begin with. What are you afraid of? I realize this is strange, and probably for some of you, just another reason why I'm a little bit off kilter. Why I'm a little bit off, but <clears throat> I think we need to ask this question actually more often. Now, if you've been around the church long enough, you've been a believer, maybe the first thought is, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to fear. True. Or maybe you say, I don't fear because of Jesus. True. But sometimes when we take that stance, we miss what the Lord may have us to do. We can quickly get to, I'm not supposed to fear, so we cover things up. And as long as I don't admit it, as long as I don't see it, then it isn't really there. All is well. I'm not scared, you're scared. Kind of a thing. And instead, I think sometimes we need to see there can be a gift of fear. In fact, the Lord would use fear. Yes, he says time and time again, do not be afraid. And that is true. But you know what? There's also many times within Scripture where God says, be afraid. In particular, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of lots of things. Be afraid of that coming judgment. Say, but I'm a believer. I'm already in God's family. Yes. Your name may be in the book of life, but there may be other times where God says, you haven't been a good and faithful servant. You get in. But that's about it. Fear can be good if we know what it is. If we know where it can be. This Father's Day, there may be fear. For some of us guys, men, maybe, uh, I'll be honest, one of my fears is I'm going to mess up my kids so much that they're going to need a counselor to help recover from their dad who's a pastor and a counselor. You know? And, I, and a lot of parents can resonate with that. You know, you're afraid of messing up. You're afraid of being too harsh or not harsh enough. Maybe you're afraid uh, of being uh, present, not enough. And you have shame and guilt because you're, you're trying to provide, yet you realize by providing you're not present. Maybe some of you this day, you're, you're afraid of that next decision to make. Maybe you're in a relationship and, and you know it may not be the best, and you're, but I'm afraid of getting out of it. Maybe you're afraid to be in it. Fear runs. What are you afraid of? See, I believe our world is 
for despair. I think we've seen that on display. It's always been there. We just got a picture inside. You know, uh, they're, they're afraid of things. We even have a term, uh, you know, fear of missing out. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. So we do think because we're afraid we will not have the opportunity. It's very similar to YOLO, who only lives once. You know, which I know for you younger ones, you're like, that's so like 10 years ago. It is. All right, they just replaced with FOMO. Fear of missing out. It's the same kind of thing. So we gotta do it quickly or we may never get it. And I think sometimes though we need to realize some fear is very valid. It's okay. In fact, you know, if we went to the extreme that sometimes we in the conservative Christian world will do is have no fear, have no fear, really, in the rest of the world we have issues with that. If my daughter Eliana has no fear and goes up to anybody in everybody, that becomes an issue. Right? You know, we don't want that. If she becomes too uh, confident in herself and just kind of wanders around in the middle of 36, that's an issue. We could say, which she knows Jesus at her age, have no fear. Well, this isn't a have no fear, not go play traffic. Have no fear, go up to anybody. There is a wisdom. It is consistent with Scripture. Our goal is never to be completely without fear. But to understand our fear and go, okay, Lord, is this appropriate? Is this okay? Our world isn't the only thing that's scared. I think the church is scared. I think we as the church are scared. Not maybe our church. I think we're pretty good. But, but generally speaking, I think we're scared. I think we're scared of losing power, losing status. We're scared of the world has changed around us. We don't know what to do. This isn't the world we have known for our 200 plus years. What do we do? The fear of the unknown is great. I interact with it a lot, myself and others. And in some parts of the world, God is great. There is a legitimate fear of oppression and death. Not because of just gathering. But in China, I think of Myanmar especially, where to proclaim the name of Jesus can be a death sentence. I think of the, uh, some countries in Africa. They're not worried about losing power. They're worried about losing life. But we sing it. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Meaning, you can't lose freedom, even by a government, if you are in the family of God. So don't be afraid of maybe losing freedoms. The rest of the world, Christians, have been through that. In fact, the church throughout the ages, when it has thrived the most, is when it has been under circumstances that would try to limit the freedom of the church. A persecuted church is a pure church. Because they can't get involved in lots of other things. So let me ask again, what are you afraid of? Where 
as you hear that question again, something will pop up. Where and what are you afraid? Because the beauty is, Scripture doesn't just leave us in our fear. It doesn't just say, do not be afraid, but will give us examples of what can happen with our fear in Judges 7 and 8. Deal with fear. It's a primary thing. It's not the only thing. There are other things there. But we see the role of fear in Judges 7. Back to Judges 6, 7, and 8. And I want to start with really kind of the precursor to Judges 7 where, where Gideon comes and, and he asks for a son. We read these words in Judges 6, 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, then he gives a sign, the fleece. And, and I'm afraid sometimes we look at Judges 6 here and we say, be like Gideon and go get a fleece. Well, the issue is, is the fleece was not about discerning God's will. He already knew it. As he pronounces the sign for the fleece, he says, if as you have promised, Midian's going to go into my hands as you promised, but now I want to make sure. It's not about trying to discern God's will. He already had that. And he admits that. And in fact, to some extent, the Spirit of God, if you read the verses beforehand, the Spirit of God has come upon Gideon, and he already has an army. In fact, he has an army of probably close to 30,000 people. Hello! It's not about, God, is this your will? The beauty of this is his fear that is present. God is patient with his fear. God is patient with your fear. It's not always as simple as just don't be afraid. Sometimes we need God to work with our fear. The fleece was never about God's will. It was always about Gideon's fear. And so we continue on. And, and he asks twice. This is, by the time he gets to the end of chapter 7, or beginning of chapter 7, the end of chapter 6, verse 40, Gideon has had three signs from God. Two with the fleece, one with the burnt sacrifice. Will this work? What, will his fear be overcome? Will he exchange his fear of the Midianites for a fear of the Lord? Or will he continue? And so we continue to pick up. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that's Gideon's other name, okay? His other name that the nation gave him. And all his men camped the spring of Aaron, which means place of trembling. Okay? Really interesting. You know, here we have a guy that's been trembling in his fear, getting ready to fight a battle at the place called trembling. And God does what God said he would always do. See, within the war passages of Deuteronomy and the covenant, there is a time when God says, when you go to war, if anyone is scared to go to war, let them go home. See, all fear isn't necessarily that. 
God gave the permission to go home. And so we read here that, that Gideon is going to uh, give this kind of provision. Now, let me just state maybe an obvious. God just made the situation worse. Do you realize this? Gideon is scared to go to battle. He's scared to be that warrior, and God says, hey, Gideon, you got too many people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Gideon may have had enough of a logical brain. He may have been afraid, but he was able to get quite a few men to come to his aid. And he knows in battle, you need more than the other guy, probably. You at least need to be matched up well. So God says to Gideon, send anybody home in this place of trembling that is trembling. So Gideon does, and much maybe to his demise, over 22,000 men left. Two-thirds of his fighting power left. If you're Gideon, I have a feeling you're trembling a little bit more than boots, sandals, or whatever he's wearing. This isn't a recipe for good outcomes. Right? And then... What does God do? He says, okay, you still have too many. What? 10,000 isn't that many. I mean, it's a third of what I have left. What do you mean I have too many? He says, take them down to the stream. And there's great debate over what is the real point here. Is it the fact that people who put their head down, they're no longer looking at the enemy? You know what? God was just trying to prove a point here. It's not about how they break something. It's about God is going to do something, and he makes matters even more difficult. And he is left at the end with 300 men. Now, what do you think Gideon's fear level was? Well, God, I thought I asked for a good sign that you were going to give them into my hand. Now I've got 300. Yes. Here's why. What may seem like a victory in our eyes may be a liability in God's eyes. What may seem like a victory for you and I, Gideon, had 30,000 plus men. A victory. But God said, that's your liability. Because we get why God did this. We get the rest of the story at the beginning. He says that the Lord uh, said in verse 2 of chapter 7, said to Gideon, you have too many men, I can't deliver Midian into their hands, for Israel were boast, saying, my own strength has saved you. You see, God will sometimes expose and magnify our fear so we understand who's really in control. God will sometimes magnify your fear because if you don't deal with it, you think you can deal with it. You think you're okay. You think it is that important. Gideon, throughout all of the Judges 6, 7, and 8, he's a man of fears, of fear. And one time God says, don't be afraid. He said, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. And there's almost a hint of, I could if I wanted to. But by my grace, you are still here. 
By my grace, the hands of the Midianites are going to be put into your hand. By my grace, I allow you to ask me again and again and again, will I be there? Because God, by his grace, is trying to get to the root of all the issue the nation is dealing with. An issue of pride. Pride can be a symptom of fear or the result of fear. Which seems odd, doesn't it? Because prideful people, we don't think are scared. I mean, they, they, they show confidence. They show, I can do this. They show this demeanor that all is well. Down on the underneath side, I would venture to say they may be scared. They may be scared because they don't want anybody else. They, they, they exude this sense of confidence and pride because they don't want anybody to know what they know. They're in a place of trouble. Or because, you know what, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I have to be right even if I don't know the answer. I gotta prove that I have knowledge because if you don't know that I know, you might think less of me. And throughout all of Scripture, when a nation, when an individual gets pride, it becomes the downfall. Hence the proverb of Solomon: "Pride comes before the fall." And I would suggest before there's pride, there's probably underneath. But if we don't deal with it, I believe we allow pride to start to fester up. And we start to look at somebody else and say, yeah, I really am better than them. We may not say it. Maybe we say, I'm not as bad as them, which is a prideful statement. When God says, I'm not comparing you to them. Is that not the words that Jesus said when, when Peter asked, what about John? What about him? When Peter's fear was being exposed, when his pride was being exposed, and Jesus said, I, I'm talking about you, and he said, well, what about this guy? What about that guy? And Jesus says, what, what does it matter to you about him? What if I want him to live until I come back? And then, fortunately, John says, that's why people started to think I would never die, but he never said that. What Jesus is saying is, it's not about you versus them, it's about you versus me. It's that way. Fine. See, we get into this story, and, and what goes on is, Gideon does a wonderful thing. He does win. Actually, he doesn't win because they never draw a sword. Okay? And as, as Judges 7 goes, 300 individuals routed the nation of Midian. Why? Because all they did was bring out the torches, bring some lanterns, and say, a sword for Gideon and for the Lord. They didn't have them. And the Midianites are so confused, they're paralyzed by fear, they fight themselves to death. What an amazing story, right? It doesn't stop there, though. If it would stop there, we would go, yes, Gideon conquered his fear. But it doesn't. Because though Gideon sees that, he starts to think he actually had something to do with it, and he goes, I'm going to finish a job that I never really started. 
many of us psycho have ever tried that? I didn't start the job, but I'm sure I'm going to finish it. I'm going to have the last word. And so we read on that, that afterwards, he goes after the nation, the, the, the leaders. He goes after them, and he continues on. And then when some men of his own nation, Israel, like the uh, others, want to come against him, and he, he's able to sue them over. I mean, Gideon actually does some really good things here. People are upset with him. He's like, what? you've already done way more than what I have. There's a lot of truth there. He didn't do anything. But then he goes after. He continues on and, and two parts, Pineo and one other, they don't give him the help that he thinks they should have. And so in his pride, he allowed justification for revenge. Because of the spirit of his first, he now sets in a path of vengeance. And so he does. Sukuth and Peniel. Don't give him help. Now there's a theme on who, who did the people of Israel, the brothers of Gideon, who did they align with? Why? There's some fear going on there. Because if they align with this, the Midianites are on their other side. This is not going to go well. So they don't do what probably they should have done, but that doesn't give us a justification for what Gideon does. He, he wins his battle the rest of the way, he goes back and takes care of his fellow countrymen. Interesting. I'm still amazed, many years ago I read from the author, I believe it was John Acock, who said he has received way more hate mail from fellow Christians than those who don't know Jesus. And I'm sure any Christian leader of any status understands that. We eat our own instead of their. So Gideon does. He allowed the pride that he had to take hold of vengeance when clearly, not just in Romans 12, but in Deuteronomy, God said, vengeance is mine. Leave room for my wrath. What if Gideon really had a fear of the wrath of God? This is what Romans says to you and I today. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, according to Deuteronomy 32, 35, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. I wonder, as I just think aloud, I wonder if sometimes we take vengeance back and we prove our point because we're not quite sure God truly understands justice. He may show too much grace. He may show too much mercy. But here's what he said. It is mine to vengeance. He said, I will do it. <coughs> I don't have to do it. I, I, I love the vengeance ministry. And I would tell the kids all the time, I'm taking this completely out of context. But I would love to tell them, you know, God says, uh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and I just happen to be his agent. I'm his instrument of it. That's not what he says. God can do his own job. God can do his own job. But sometimes because we are afraid, 
He may not do it to our life. We do it ourselves. Maybe we keep that shame, that guilt, that, that vengeance of God upon ourselves literally with self-hatred. We can't forgive ourselves of something we have done. When God has clearly forgiven his word. See, once again, when his word says it has happened, it has happened. Let his word be true. Or sometimes we think we ought to keep that shame on somebody else. We've got to remind them of what they have done in the past. And instead, we need to just pray the blessing of the Spirit upon them. The Lord will repent or will avenge his words. That's not always my job or yours. To see if I wanted upon somebody else, I think Jesus got to the point and he said, Why don't you take the log out of your eye? Then you will be able to see the speck out of somebody else's. If I'm going to pray God's vengeance and wrath upon someone else, I better pray it upon myself. And I believe when I do that, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. Well, the story continues on. Don't you wish right in the middle of Judges we could have just been as quick as everyone else at this point in time? But that's not what's going to happen. Setting the stage, we see that the sin of Gideon led to the sin of others. He has some great things here. He, he, the nation comes to him and says, I tell you what, Gideon, be our ruler, be our king. You have done what we couldn't do. In fact, the king of the Midianites that he, he kills says, you must be a king. You must have gotten it. We killed princes like you. He wasn't a prince. He just happened to be called by God to do a job with God. And he gets it right. He says, no, no, no. I will not rule over you, nor will my sons rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Great. He's got it. Except he doesn't. But what does he do next? Tell you what, I won't be your king, but why don't you give me some of the stuff that you took from the Midianites? Got a plan. He makes a golden ephod. Probably actually put it on a golden image, very similar to what Aaron did in Exodus with the calf. Because see, Gideon understood maybe something that, that we need to see here. He's the only judge that hears from God personally. He has a conversation with him. He starts to think the place that he was had to be special that God could show up there. He says, I don't want to lead you, but then he goes on to act as if he is the ruler of the nation. And we have a precursor in Judges of what will happen to the nation of Israel. What do we read? We read that Gideon went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives, and he had a concubine. And he had gold. And he had all the things of being a king without actually calling himself a king. He may have uttered the right words, but by his life, 
uttered different words. What about you and me? How do we do similar things? How do we utter the words of Christ? I am a believer, but yet we then with our lives speak things that are not consistent. We can say the right things, but we may miss it with our lives. Jesus said there's coming a day where, where he will throw people to the side. He will, he will execute judgments. I believe it is Matthew 7. And then there will be some people say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And the response back was, wait, what do you mean I never knew you? I prophesied in your name. I healed in your name. I fed the sick in your name. And he said, I never knew you. What a dreadful day in that. Why would he say that? Because he's trying to get his disciples. He's trying to get you and me. He was trying with all of judges to get the nation of Israel to realize, don't fear the enemy that is outside you. Fear the one who has called you. Because he said, why fear someone who can take your life? Instead, fear the one who will execute true judgment, Matthew 10. As if you do our devotions alongside of us, you will. So the remedy is focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. When you have a fear, take it to him and say, expose it if you'd like. You may not want that, I'll be honest. I don't like when Christ says, I do want to expose that. Hey, no, 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 just take it away. No, I'm going to use this as a learning tool for you. I want to use this so that when you get through this, you will understand how sufficient I am. And that is tucked in the name of I am himself. Sufficiency. What are you afraid of? Will you allow that focus you on Christ? Will you allow Christ to take that fear? He may just quickly say to you, do not be afraid of what we're doing. It's fine. And you may not have to have it exposed. I would pray that upon everybody. But you know what? Sometimes darkness can only be uh, driven out by light. And as I've said many times, in the evening, if you would like, you can find the light of day by chasing after the sunset. Sooner or later, you may find it. And it will be tough. Sometimes, what you've got to do is turn into the darkness, into the fear, and start working and walking in the direction of the east that is pitch black because sooner or later, the sun will find you. And that is the hope of our lives. That in our darkness, in our weakness, in our fear, if we were willing to turn into the darkness, sometimes Christ will say, I am the light of the world. I have found you. And to be found in Christ is a place where when we focus on Christ, we will always be found safe and secure. I don't need to fear whether or not my freedoms go away. Though well, I don't mind. Don't want it, and I will work to make sure it doesn't happen. I don't have to fear about whether or not somebody likes me. Because they won't. They don't. 
and it's just a gift. I should not have to fear too much or at all that someone will take one of the words that I have spoken even yet today in the past 32 minutes to mean something that I didn't even think could be meant by it. But they will, and they will say, and I might do it. Instead, if I fear the Lord, I will do my best to make sure my words are clear, that I don't intentionally say something that is not only contrary to Scripture, but isn't filled with wisdom, grace, love, and truth. But I will go in the end, as long as the Lord is with me, I am going to try to believe. I will try to not let the fear of men, even my fellow family members, get in the way of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord beginning with wisdom, love, grace, and God. Will you pray with me?